Uh, as we pick up here, uh, just remember that Paul is in Greece, what we would call modern-day Greece, uh, Athens last week, and, and just remember that it was a, a, a city that was described as just, you know, being steeped in idolatry, idols everywhere you turned, uh, and that sort of thing. So we're going to pick up in chapter 18 and read through verse 23. As for this, Paul left, or after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, uh, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and, uh, and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with a word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was... Uh, next door to the synagogue, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with the entire house, his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews came, uh, uh, made a, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were not were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal, and they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So Paul continues on. He, uh, he witnessed uh, to the greatness and the glory of Christ in Athens. Uh, now he's moved on to Corinth. And I shared with you last week that I actually had the great privilege of visiting uh, Athens many, many years ago. Uh, I actually came very close to Corinth. I could see it up on top of a hill, but I never actually got the opportunity to go into the city Corinth was located on an isthmus that separates Upper Greece from Lower Greece. Uh, and you probably, if you've heard anything about Corinth, you probably have heard about the Corinth Canal, right? I actually got to ride on a boat through the Corinth Canal. That was cool. Because, I mean, you're going through there, and it's like six or eight or ten miles long, and, you know, you're looking up these sheer cliffs 
from the water level all the way up, and it's several hundred feet to the top of it. It's, just, it's one of those marvels of the, uh, of the world, you know, that, that, that engineers have been able to do over the years. But what it did was it really cut down the amount of time it took you to get from the Aegean Sea into the sea that separates Greece and Italy, the Adriatic Sea. Uh, I mean, it cuts off days as far as making that trek goes. So it's worked to the advantage uh, of people for many, many generations. It was started, uh, you know, back in the days of Paul. They began to make an attempt to do this, but, uh, but it was only in modern day that uh, they were able to actually complete this Corinth Canal. What Paul found in Corinth was licentiousness run amok. In other words, people were living in virtually every type of immorality that you can possibly imagine. Corinth was known for its wild and extravagant immorality. In other words, they practiced immorality in a sense bragged about it. It might remind us somewhat of modern-day Las Vegas as far as its reputation goes. Uh, but I would say that probably Las Vegas is very mild in its, 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 its participation in this sort of thing compared to the way that Corinth was. In Corinth, people did whatever people wanted to do. Whatever they thought made them feel good and etc. they entered into it. Some of the first people that Paul encountered in Corinth were Priscilla and Aquila, Jews, who had, had, had not evidently been there for very long because they, had, they were living in Rome and they had to leave Rome, and this is where they, they made their way to Corinth. But they had something in common with the Apostle Paul. They were tent makers. Now, I seriously doubt we have any tent makers. I mean, and we're talking about literal tent makers, okay? I don't think we have anybody in this room that ever made their living making tents. But in the ancient Near East, tent making was a very important industry. A very reputable kind of profession to be in, and a necessary profession to be in. And we understand that this is where the whole concept of a tent maker comes from as we speak about it today. Is that Priscilla and Aquila and Paul were tent makers. And we use that phrase today to refer to someone who is very actively involved in ministry, but they also work in some other profession, and that is where their financial support comes from. I've known a few people in my day that basically still fell in that category. Some church, you know, we're not a big church. There are some churches in the PCA that are, that are so small that they cannot support a pastor. So it's not unusual for them to have men that we would call tent makers ministering in those particular churches and congregations. 
Paul will be in Corinth for a year and a half. This is one of the most lengthy stays that he has anywhere in his, all his years of ministry. And that should tell us something, and that is that Paul saw these people as having a great need for the gospel. There was no church when Paul came, but there was one there of significant size by the time he left. Paul's ministry in Corinth was relatively successful. He practiced here what he did everywhere else, and that is to the Jewish people first, to the Jewish synagogue, and only after the gospel was rejected by the Jews did he turn to the Gentiles. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Greeks and, uh, and Jews. Initially, it doesn't seem as though Paul's ministry in Corinth was all that successful. In other words, he was gain, gaining a little bit of ground. He met very great opposition. Not so much in the Greek culture that was there, but opposition as far as the Jewish congregation that was there. Unfortunately, as the years would unfold, the Corinthian church would gain the reputation of being a church divided. I don't know how, much, how familiar you are with First and Second Corinthians, but they have everything to do with divisions that existed in the church over just about every subject that you can come up with. Paul teaches in those, uh, those books about marriage and sexual morality. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual uh, immorality among and, uh, you and of a nature that is not tolerated even by pagans. That a man has his father's wife. Now, I've heard all kinds of explanations about people saying that that, that wasn't really what, uh, what it sounds like coming from our perspective. But I believe it was, that there actually was a man that was having a marital-type relationship with his mother. Now, can you imagine such gross immorality in the world. But we're talking about this kind of gross moral immorality in the church itself. The 
church members were suing one another in civil court. They were not working out their differences with one another on a personal and private level or even the mechanism of the authority of the church. They were suing one another in civil courts. It was also a church that had elevated certain spiritual gifts to be higher and greater and more important than others. It was a church that was not disciplining its members when they needed to be disciplined. Members were turning slash expecting the secular world to solve their differences. They were bringing lawsuits against one another. Members were defiling the Lord's Supper by turning it basically into just a big party hearty. There was controversy as to whom they principally followed. Some said Paul, others said Apollos, some said Thesephus, who was Peter. Oh, and lo and behold, there at least a few said they followed Christ. Hallelujah for that. And one of the things I would say in regard to that is it's so, you know, do we have basically heroes of the faith in our time? Pastors, preachers, other Christian, you know, worker professionals that we hold in, in very, very high esteem and, uh, and that sort of thing. And sometimes even to the point that it's almost as if we are disciples of that person rather than being disciples of Christ. Paul was aghast. He was horrified. That anyone would claim to be a follower of his instead of being a follower of Christ. You know, sometimes Springs Pres is referred to as Keith's Church. You know, when I go to Presbytery, and it's something that even pastors are guilty of doing. I'll go to Presbytery, and they'll say, how is your church going? <laughs> but let me just tell you something. This church is, is more your church than it is my church. The way the PCA is set up, my church technically is our presbytery. I'm not a member of Springs Presbyterian Church. Most of you are. You have rights and privileges in this church that I do not have. Ultimately, I really don't have any authority or say-so about Hopefully, there's some influence that I have, but authoritatively, it's the session where the authority rests, not me. But even though the struggle was great 
and difficult. Paul had fruit in Corinth. I want to remind us of something this morning, and that is even Jesus himself was not always successful in his evangelistic efforts. There were a lot of people, evidently, apparently, that heard Jesus teach. They'd heard Jesus evangelize. And yet they did not accept what he said. They did not become believers. And if you read the Gospels, you'd have to come to the conclusion that there, were, in fact, was a great number of people that fell into that category. The same thing is true for Paul. And I think you really could very easily argue that next to Jesus, that Paul was the very greatest evangelist by a long shot that has ever lived. But Paul and his message was not able to reach everyone. As a matter of fact, Paul and his message probably only reached a small percentage, a relatively small percentage of the people that heard the gospel flow forth from his mouth. The same thing's true for Jesus. Not everyone believed it. As a matter of fact, it's not hard to imagine that there was only a small percentage of people who ever heard the gospel come forth from the mouth of Christ that believed it. You see, it's very easy sometimes for Christians to become discouraged. I know that most of you have been witnessing to particular people that you've known in your lifetime for sometimes maybe for years and years and years and you've never seen any fruit from it. And you feel maybe like a failure. Maybe I haven't said the right thing. Maybe I haven't done the right thing. Maybe I need to figure out some other mechanism of trying to reach them. Maybe I need to tell them things I haven't told them. Maybe my message hasn't been clear. Maybe my own life doesn't demonstrate the power of God working in me, and maybe I'm my own worst witness of the gospel. You need to be reminded of something, and I do too, and that is that Jesus nor Paul saved everyone they spoke to. So my word for you this morning is don't let those people who seem to be apparent failures, don't give up on them first of all. You need to continue to witness to them as best you can over and over again because we understand this. That sometimes some people are really hard at it. And it takes a long time for things to really begin to seep in. I'd say it's more hard-hearted. So don't give up on those people because there really are deathbed conversions. Okay? We can't give up on anybody until they breathe their last breath. But I just want to remind us this morning that Scripture teaches us 
that we will in fact fail sometimes. As a matter of fact, we might fail very often. That we cannot let our failures overcome us. If Paul did, Paul would have stopped. You may reach the end of your life and not be able to say that I had a, played a big part in leading so-and-so to Jesus. But you know what? It's not up to you or me. It's up to God Almighty. Just cause talk as much as we do, witness as much as we do. We cannot even begin to change a heart that is captured by sin. It's not on our scale of abilities. We cannot do it. Salvation is always and first most primarily in the hands of God. Everyone who's ever done any evangelism at all has failed on at least on occasion. That we are called to faithfully speak forth the words and knowing that God alone can change the heart. But think about Jesus. It's hard to conceive that someone could possibly have heard the gospel flow forth in all of his beauty and grace and power from the lips of Christ and not be reached by it. It's a measure, my friends, of just how fallen in sin the human heart is. To measure the greatness of the darkness of the fallen human heart. And just remember, we're reformed here, and that means this is we have the order of salvation in the proper order in which it takes place. And that is this, that the Lord must cause someone to be born again before they will ever step out of the death of sin. Not something I can do, not something you can do. God calls us nonetheless to be faithful. God not only calls us to be faithful, he expects us to be faithful. And we understand this. That on occasion, there are going to be people who make professions of faith, but in some time, 
it proves to be a false profession. Because we probably have known people in our lifetime. I've known a few people who have professed Christ, made a profession of faith in him, who have completely fallen away from the church at some point. It's only the test of time that proves every profession of faith is being real and legitimate. Staying the course is the proof that you've had a genuine conversion. Just remember this, Paul had opposition everywhere he went, just like Jesus did. None of us likes opposition. I hate opposition. I hate confrontation. But if we are actively engaged in evangelism, we will experience it at times. I would imagine a lot of people would have been very greatly discouraged, maybe just given up everything. Paul's experience in Corinth and just headed back home. And he probably would have or possibly could have if it were not for the fact there was some fruit. And some of that fruit was in very high places. Crispus, who was in fact the ruler of the synagogue. In other words, he was the most central person in the Jewish community in Corinth. And he was converted. And not only him, but also his entire household. Let me just say this. If the Lord had sent Paul to Corinth for the sole purpose of saving Crispus and his family, would it have been worth the effort? Yes. So I just want to remind us that even though it seems as though there was a large majority of people in the synagogue, the Jewish community, who rejected the gospel, there were always some who didn't. We all need encouragement. I hope that one of the reasons you come here on Sunday morning is that you're encouraged by being here. Maybe sometimes you don't feel that way when you leave. But we need each other, and we need each other for a lot of reasons, and one of those is so that we can be encouragers of one another. This is one of the reasons why small group studies are so important because you, you, you get an intimacy in those groups that you just don't get with, with other people in a church uh, very often. Something we've always emphasized. We've always had bi- small group Bible studies going on from the very... But, but we were doing that before we were having church. There are some things that you get from being involved in those groups that you're just flat not going to get otherwise. You may feel like you're a part of the church, but at the same time you don't feel all that, that, that close to other people.
The Lord said to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. You need to understand something. And I've shared this with you before, that statistically it's easy to say that, uh, that evangelism is probably the thing that scares most Christians above everything else that we're afraid of. It's common for Christians to fear evangelism. You would think that it would just flow freely from us. You would think that you, 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 you know, a team of horses couldn't hold us back. <laughs> because we've got the very greatest news that any person could ever hear. But sometimes I think our fear of failure is what holds us back. We're afraid, that, and I've heard this from people, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, I'm afraid I'm going to do the wrong thing. Uh, the last thing I'm going to do is push someone further away from the church. So it's common for Christians to fear evangelism, and I would say above everything else. It is the number one fear that most Christians have. It's encouraging to understand that Paul had his fears too. The difference between him and us very often is that he did not let his fears overcome him. He did not let his fears hold him back. As far as my own experience goes with evangelism, I haven't been all that great at it. I have literally shared the gospel with a lot of people. But what I have found is this is very often we want to make judgments. We want to say, well, I'll share the gospel with this person because they're such a, that, that person's so nice and wonderful already that they would make a great Christian. You ever they have those thoughts about people sometimes? Many times, the people, I think, who are least likely to come to faith are the ones who actually do it. Some people are smiling here because they know exactly what I'm talking about because they were that person. And so was I. The truth is God always knows ahead of time what will become of our evangelistic efforts for a reason. And that reason, he has predetermined the result. Not you, not me. God saves people we don't. God alone can save people. You and I cannot. You 
Do you understand that what we're talking about here fundamentally is a trust issue? There's a sense in which, you know, by backing off of evangelism and not being that actively engaged in it, it's because we distrust God in regard to the outcome. Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, which is Greece. And just like Jesus wound up before Pilate, now Paul winds up before Gallio. Brought basically in very similar circumstances, that sort of thing. Gallio had just recently been appointed the proconsul of Corinth. Uh, it turns out that Gallio and Paul actually have something in common. They both will be executed by Emperor Nero in the years to come. Didn't know each other at all till that day. I mean, the picture here is that we have Jews in a Greek city who are bringing charges against a Jew before the Roman court. Doesn't seem quite right, does it? And I hope you see the, the overlapping, the very similarity between what's going on with Paul here as what went on with Jesus. Same picture. And it's not the only time Paul will experience this. It's, 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 it's the, almost the rule of thumb of what Paul experiences everywhere he goes. But unlike Pilate, Gallio refused to do the bidding of the Jewish community. Now, don't get the idea that he was a good guy because he wasn't. The difference between him and Pilate was Pilate allowed the Jewish community to use him. Gallio Refused to be used by the Jews. So Paul is there for a year and a half. And there's a church there when he leaves. And a church that he stays in communication with over more years of ministry. He now leaves. And he heads back to Syria. His second missionary journey is finished. This one was far more extensive than his first one was. He went a lot further. And remember that he was always being led wherever he went by the Holy Spirit. Paul was very sensitive to that. God 
directed his path. And Paul knew it. He had his hair cut for he was under a vow. And there's been all kinds of speculations about what that vow happened to be. And I'm not even going to suggest anything. What it is is a demonstration that whatever vow it was, it was completed at that point because a Nazareth vow required that you not have your hair cut. So he's gone the whole time without having a haircut until this vow is fulfilled. And possibly the vow could have been that he was going to return back to where he came from. And that's just speculative. Don't, don't, don't say that Keith, Pastor Keith told me what that was. That it very well could be something like that. His relationship with Priscilla and Aquila would be long lasting. On his way back, I just want to mention this one thing. He, he visits a place called Ephesus that he had never been to apparently before. And he sailed from Greece to Asia Minor. Ephesus is at the western tip of Asia Minor. And, but it was a place that he visited, a place that he understood needed to hear the gospel very much. And on his third journey, he will spend a very lengthy time in Ephesus. And that's where we're going to be going next week. So is this an encouragement to you? I mean, do you feel encouraged to do evangelism at this point? Or do you feel like your pastor's just beat me up one more time because he's calling me to do something I just don't relish doing? It is the business of Christ. Therefore, it is the business of everyone.